are with another episode of the Cosmic Salon, and I have a very special guest here that I'm going to start bringing into a rotation. Uh, it's an easy way for me to stay in contact with him because I am always doing something and it's hard to keep in touch with people I adore. And this is a friend of mine that we connected through poetry on Steemit of all places and developed a really deep, intimate relationship through that. And he's remarkable. He's born and raised in Israel, uh, has a fantastic Hebrew accent, which I just love, and is an atheistic Jewish person. And I always found that intriguing. So we'll find out what that means here in a second when I bring him on. I enjoy his ability to bring forth this perspective into my world. So the, the Hebrew stuff. And he's really helped me grow from that standpoint, because I really only have a lot of contact with American Jewish people. And there's a big difference. There's a a giant chasm in between the two. And something about going to the source is important for me, especially in these times where everyone's misconstruing language. And especially when we're talking about going into Hebrew, non Hebrew speakers, even if they're learned for a long time, still seem to get little things slightly askew, I've noticed. Well, let me say this. Guy has told me this. (laughs) He is an anime expert, a fantastic, brilliant writer. He writes better in English than most English people. So this is a He's a savant of sorts. And so I'm going to let him bring on his own bio. But with that, I'm going to bring on my friend Guy. Hello, Guy. How are you? I am fine. Hello, Nish. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's raining here and I have my cat behind me. So all is well in the world, aside from all the things that aren't so great yes. in the year 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we have our own small havens so my own little bio i play games competitively especially card games such as magic the gathering hearthstone and other various sorts of strategy games i write poetry i've always been in love with language Uh, i've loved reading since since i've learned how to read basically what i do most i would say is analyze things Like, I can't not pay attention to small details. So that has become a focus on analyzing media, uh, giving constructive criticism to all sorts of people about all sorts of things. And yeah, I like reading more or less everything. I actually used to read the encyclopedia. For you younger people, that's what we used to have before we had Wikipedia. We had books. (laughs) <laughs> full of entries and I would actually sit and read them <laughs> <laughs> and also you are a philosophy student in university yes, yes. sadly I I should have graduated from my master's studies years ago but due to personal reasons and depression I still 
have not done so. But yeah, I focus specifically on the philosophy of language and metaphysics and epistemology. Metaphysics is the study of what there is, and epistemology is the knowledge of, I'm sorry, is the study of how we know things. I belong more to the analytical side of philosophy and less to what is called the continental side, which is the German and French side of things in philosophy. So could you clarify both for us just briefly? Analytical philosophy is, let's say, it's closer to science, unsurprisingly. Uh, It deals more with formal logic. It asks... Uh, it looks at the structure of language as well to find out things and it follows lo- logical deductions while uh, while continental philosophy has most of the well-known philosophers of the 19th and 20th century and such as Foucault and deals with a lot more with social subjects as well. It it's more about, it's, I don't know how to say it without, without doing it an injustice, but let's just say that it's much harder to read <laughs> amongst <laughs> other things. Like you, you can read a paragraph and by the end of it, you, you don't remember what you've read in the beginning. They actually write a bit like me yes. in the sense that they have sentence long paragraphs, but in, Husserl, like, intentionalism, it's not actually a school of philosophy. Analytical philosophy is more a school of philosophy. It's more like an approach to philosophy, and it's really hard to define because there's continental philosophy of language, continental metaphysics. It's an approach to philosophy more than it is actual philosophical standpoints. Yeah. It's really, really not that easy for me, especially since it's not actually the school that I was into. I would say that if you want to to read more, you should look it up because you might be interested, but be prepared that the reading... Actually, analytical philosophy is not that easy either, but be prepared that actually reading serious philosophy is pretty hard. Yeah. Yes, it is. You have a very, you know, at least did, I'm not sure what the state of it now, a very successful anime blog. Yeah, it's it's also part of the same reasons not, it hasn't been updated since you've last seen. But yeah, yeah so what I do, I, I find for people who are not aware of um, Gamergate, I will say, there was a brouhaha several years ago about objective news coverage in gaming and objective criticism of games. So everyone who has ever reviewed anything knows that there is no such thing as an objective review because we always bring ourselves into it and an objective review would simply be to state what is happening. What Gamergate, uh, as, as an aside was, was actually an attempt to silence people who voiced, uh, who tried to bring social issues into the coverage of games, like, like saying that a game is 
culturally insensitive, for instance, or misogynistic. So it basically was a, a form of gatekeeping. So my blog doesn't, from the get-go, even far, like for the last 10 years, I, I never call it reviews. I call it things I like. Yeah. I pick a show and I will discuss something in the show or something or an idea that the show reminds me of and tie it to the show rather than actually saying this show has good me, uh, good shots or good voice acting. Like I actually do include that part as, as a couple of sentences at the end of a 3000 word post, for instance, yeah. where I would, <laughs> where I would, uh, let's say, discuss the concept of love from one show or discuss the concept of adulthood and growing and losing hope via a show that covered the process of making anime uh, for an anime studio. The show is like, I'm not saying that the shows don't matter, but I find that good writing and good reviews obviously says more about the author than about what you're covering. It's a way to connect with people and being aware of it allows you to write it more clearly. On the other hand, sometimes I have uh, write-ups where I use a show to discuss philosophical topics. For instance, Gatchaman Crowds, which was a show deeply steeped in uh, social concepts. A lot of sociology went into that show. So I basically break down sociological concepts and or philosophical concepts and use scenes or arcs from a show as a way to, to show it. And then also as a bio, and we're only going to do this bio this time. Uh, as I said, I'd like this to be a revolving encounter with you. But I know this about you and I want to put it out there. So I happen to know that you are considered a genius. You're extremely high intellect, extremely intelligent, and um, it's acknowledged where you are amongst your peers, where it's acknowledged. And so I find that to be a significant point as we move forward into some of these discussions. And so, whereas you may not say that openly, I can. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, but I, I can't say anything about it <laughs> without I sounding. I know, and I appreciate that. But I do know that you're you're technically in that category. So I just wanted people to understand that, that you're, you're quite brilliant. And uh, I certainly have... Uh, been someone to appreciate that in you. And I also see that as, as you already mentioned, you have and deal with, live with depression and you're quite open about that. And I do think sometimes that plays into some of the depths that you find yourself in, which can be quite low. And I think as the series moves further in, we'll get into some of that so that there is some outreach for people that do deal with depression, because I think most people do to some degree, and you have to an extreme degree. So this is all a good foundation to move forward on. But what we're starting this on right now is I 
in particular want to get into Jewish mysticism. And like I said, because you come from an atheistic point of view, I find that intriguing. So could you also give us a little foundation on how it is you consider yourself a Jewish atheist? Yes, and I'm also going to say some things that are going to rub Christians and Europeans and Americans in the wrong way. I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm just putting it out there. First thing first, the concept of atheism as like in Christian countries, atheism is considered the opposite of religiosity. But atheism quite literally means lack of belief in God. So in the East, including all the Jews that hail from Arab countries, the concept of being an atheist religious people isn't as, isn't seen as so much as a contradiction because you can be religious but not believe in God. And that brings us to something I want to point out. Um, in Hebrew, the term for the New Testament and Old Testament is, doesn't use the word testament. It uses the word covenant mm. because in Judaism, it is a covenant. It is something you do as opposed to Christianity where the most important thing is to witness, to believe, to know, so to speak. So for a Christian, the concept of being a Christian while not believing in God is a contradiction. In Judaism, you can be religious while not believing in God, even though there are, obviously, you are told to believe in God and that there is only God, and, and, and that he is the real God. But you can be a practicing Jew and follow all the religious laws while not actually believing in God. Now, I'm not a religious Jew. I define myself as culturally Jewish. Like, I treat the Bible and the holidays as things I follow because it is part of my heritage, part of my upbringing, but out of a choice. And it's not because I think that God will smite me if I, let's say, eat pig. I don't eat pig because it is something that is part of my culture to, to do, not because I believe in a God. Yeah. But yeah, you can be a religious atheist Jew. It is still, like, it's not something that, even here, like, some people do see it as a contradiction, but I've actually seen that there are books, I believe that they are written by Americans, by the by, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, about being an atheist Jew. There's also, obviously, another part, which is especially pertinent in Israel, because if your mother is a Jew, you're Jewish. Like, that's enough for you to be yes. ethnic, ethnically, with scare quotes, to be Jewish. Yes. So there are a lot of people in Israel who are, let's say, ethnically Jewish, while not being religiously Jewish or culturally Jewish. Like, they eat non, not kosher, they don't care about the holidays at all, but they are still part of the Jewish people. The Holocaust obviously had a part to play in it because, you know, it drew a line and everyone who was on one side of it 
was Jewish. It didn't matter what they believed. It didn't matter how they lived. It didn't even matter if they considered themselves Jewish. They were defined as Jews. Yeah. So after the Holocaust, obviously, a lot of European Jews who who assimilated into the Gentiles actually emigrated to Israel and, and see themselves as Jews because... It is what it is. <laughs> it's matriarchal. Yes. Yes. It's matrilineal. Matrilineal. And so... Even though Kohens yeah. and Levites, uh, which the Kohens are the priesthood, uh, like everyone who has the surname Kohen, and also several other surnames, are actually descendants from the priests uh, back, in, back during the days of the temple, but that passes for the patrilineal side, not the matrilineal side. Okay. Just briefly here, because we can, there'll be plenty of other shows where all this can get kind of woven in. The different sects, so I think of recently in America, in New York, and you've been to New York, the, Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, making the news here are the Hasidic Jews in New York City yes. in Brooklyn. I love this. They're not having this lockdown. I just I think it's fabulous. But that's my own perspective and looking at what's going on. But what it's, separates? It's also not exactly true about not having the lockdown. Well, let's not get into that right now. What's the difference? So what what is a Hasidic Jew? Okay, so before we get to the Hasidic Jew, there are three main sects. Of Judaism, let's say, like you have Catholicism versus Protestants in yes. Christianity as of the two main sects, and then within Protestants you have a lot more sects. In Judaism, you have the Orthodoxy, which in Israel the majority of people and the government backing are to the Orthodoxy. You have the Reform, and you have uh, the Conservatives. Basically, the Orthodox people consider the conservatives to be wrong Jews and the reforms to be almost non-Jews. <laughs> uh, the reforms, for instance, allow women to be rabbis and to take to the stand uh, and read from uh, the Bible during the Sabbath and stuff like that. But so these are the three big parties, uh, three big sects, and as mentioned, in, in America, actually, the reform and the conservative are the majority, especially amongst the more educated people and the left. Uh, the, now, the Hasidic Jews, the Hasidic tradition is one that originated in Eastern Europe, as far as I know, and it basically... They basically have like a rabbi who is a spiritual leader and he has a following. That's the easiest way to put it. There are many Hasidic sects. They are, we, we would call them actually ultra-Orthodox. They are the people whom you see go around dressed in black and white, even in the heat of summer. And they have a funny hats. And the hats depend on which sect of Hasidicism, which which uh, court I would say they belong to. 
So like if you actually are part of the Hasidi, Hasidicism or if you study them, just by seeing a Hasidic Jew, you can, you can actually tell which, which group he's part of. And you also have groups like Chabad, who followed the Rabbi Melubavitch, uh, whom they believe is the Messiah. Yes. And some of them, there's a fine line because like, they say he's the Messiah, and the other ultra-Orthodox Jews say that they are wrong. But that's fine, you know, you're allowed to be wrong. But there are some people who like cross the line and say that he's God, like akin to Jesus, but that's considered sacrilege yeah. in Judaism because God does not have a physical form. And the concept, and, here's, and there is also a tension because like praying to, let's say, a picture is considered, or, or, or like to the, how, how do you call it? The cross? Yeah, yes. Uh, is, is considered idolatry. Like that's... To idols, right? Yeah, yeah. Like to a Jewish person, a Christian is an idolator. Like put, put simply, there's yeah. no two ways about it. Yeah. So Jewish women during certain periods of time really have taken to wigs. What's this whole thing with wigs? It's not at certain times. It's only amidst the ultra-Orthodoxy. There's no good way to say it, but um, the, closest word, the closest word to it is to say is the pubes. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I know it sounds hilarious, but... Or, or nakedness, but yeah. it's nakedness that is more than just the physical aspect of it, because it, it also carries a connotation of shamefulness. Like, if you say that someone was caught in ervato, which literally means caught naked, mm. or caught with their pants down, mm-hmm. uh, the actual meaning of the idiom is he was caught in shame. So as part of the halacha, the, uh, the best way to say it is that Jews don't just have the Bible, they actually try to apply it to the changing technology and life. So, and that's called the halacha, how you apply uh, the Bible to the daily life to the ch- and all sorts of ways to act. Two things that I think originated in the Bible say that a woman's voice and hair are erva, which is, again, like nakedness with an overtone of shame. So women in uh, aren't, so they hide their hair. They, they aren't, they, so they were, so depending on the sect, they either shave their hair and then wear a wig made from a foreign woman's hair, yeah. by the way. Yes. Not a Jewish woman's hair. Because they could just they, have their own hair. <laughs> yeah. Or they just hide their hair under the wig, again, depending on the sect. So it's considered part of uh, being modest. Amongst the ultra-Orthodoxy, a man isn't allowed to hear a woman sing. And this is also part of why 
women in uh, Orthodox Judaism don't get to read the Bible out loud except during uh, Purim because Purim is about the story of Esther, the queen, and because it's about a woman, then women also read, are allowed to read it in public, out loud, that is, because, and like women can only sing where only other women hear them okay. amongst Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews. So, ah, and I do want to say one thing about this that yeah. puts it into context, the nakedness being shame. Uh, the original sin, so to speak, in Judaism, it's, even though we don't have a concept of original sin, um, what the fruit of knowledge did was teach Adam and Eve to be ashamed of being naked. This is all rooted in that? Uh, at least... So, at least like from a religious standpoint, obviously it's a big part of it is actually controlling women. Like, let's be quite honest. Yes. Well, this is why I love you. And this is why I appreciate this atheistic stand where you've got to step back. You have a, a wide scope perspective, but you're also deeply enmeshed in the culture. It, it is also part of like a cultural war here because like we have places where like in ultra orthodox cities, like some people have one side of a street where only men can ride, uh, can walk and one side where, on, where only women can walk or they have buses where they want only men to sit at the front and only women to sit at the back for the same reasons but there is a saying in Hebrew which says who is a hero who overcome his urges or desires mm-hmm. because they try to eliminate everything that might make them have immodest thoughts from their sight but that's not how you you can live. That's also not how you should live, not even as a Jew. Like, you should be able to, you know, like, I see women in the streets. I see women wearing bikinis. I don't leap at them. I don't immediately <laughs> imagine myself having sex with them, right? You know, it's, all, it's basic stuff, you know? Yes, it is basic stuff. <laughs> but it's it's almost, it's, very Victorian in some senses, you know, like where when uh, seeing a woman's uncle was indecent yes. and got people uh, aroused because <laughs> of the connotations. <laughs> and it's like what's there. If if you say that seeing a woman's Hair elbow... Like he, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or like women are like uh, we, women in ultra-Orthodox, like don't wear pants because that shows the shape of her legs. And they should cover, and their ankles, and I'm sorry, their elbows should also be covered. So they wear long-sleeved shirts even in the summer. Like so, when you see these things, of course, it it gives you immodest thoughts because you've been conditioned that way. Yes, as opposed to just seeing them as people. Yes, that's a big deal. And conditioning, of course, as you know, is is a big deal, and it has its own agenda. I wanted yes. to, while we're getting the basics out here, what is a Zionist? 
A Zionist is someone who believes that Israel is the home place of a Jewish people and that they should have a country where they govern within Israel. Basically, it is the form of nationalism, not necessarily patriotism, but it basically uh, it's about being a, a sovereign country in Israel. In Israel. Okay. But for the Jewish people, that's what being a Zionist is. Okay. And then uh, one last thing. I know this only because you told me this. Israel has made it, it's a, a laurel there, I guess, to maintain a Jewish population, the majority. Yes. And so this can be controversial in our climate today, especially in American climate, where There's this whole idea of that's completely considered racist. What's going on with that? It is and isn't because there are two big schools of thought about, uh, let's say, two big realistic schools of thought about what should happen west of the Jordan River. One is that it should be a, a, one country, And in such a country, there's not guaranteed to be a Jewish majority, like the Palestinians might be the majority. And that is why the Zionist, people, the Zionist side, and also not only the Zionist side, like the American side and the Palestinians, or some of them as well, support two countries, the Palestinian Authority being one country and the Israeli country being the second one. It's complicated because actually the people who support one country uh, west of the Jordan are messianic, are messianic actually, um, <laughs> because they believe that God gave all this country to the Hebrew people, and so they don't believe that we, as Israel should give away any of it to the Palestinians. Of course, if they get what they want, they might get to live on all the territory, but they won't be the sovereign. So there is some of that as well. Um, from the Zionist side, it is even more complicated about what is happening in Israel. Currently in Israel, 80% of the population is Jewish, but it shapes It shapes some of, like, the Arab population doesn't get enough permits to build new settlements or new houses. There is a lot of, Israel is the country where you can have the most cycles of IVU uh, paid for by the government. You don't have to be Jewish, but that whole mentality leads to Uh, the national womb, I call it, which is also something that happened in fascist Europe. Like you can see that the concept of idolizing women who give birth to a lot of children as supporting the nation yeah. because the demography is important or the demography scare, you know, like being afraid that they are coming, like back during the... Nazi Germany, like there was a lot of talk about how the Jews are coming for your women 
uh, in Germany, right? Yes. And all the concepts of racial purity, like, like there's a well-known uh, private group in Israel that tries to save, scare quotes, Jewish women who marry Arab, uh, non-Jewish Arab men. Because again, if you are a Jewish woman, your children are Jewish. But if, but in Islam it goes by the father. So there are people in Israel who have both religions. I actually had someone in my junior high school whose father was Jewish and her mother was Muslim. So technically she had no religion. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it, it do be like that, as they say. So, <laughs> so there's a mess. And like, if you ask me whether Israel is an apartheid state, I will say that currently it isn't, even though Arabs are not treated as equally, but it is not a segregation um, at least not an enforced one. It is more self-enforced by both of the sides to some degree, and there are definitely inequalities. But the fear is that if Israel does uh, annex the West Bank, that it will become, it will have to become either an apartheid or a country where the Jewish population might not be the majority. You know, Guy, you know how I feel about this. I feel that it's all right to have... Uh, when I go places, when I go, say, for... Uh, when I lived in Chicago, Devon Street, which is an Indian, Eastern Indian area of Chicago, I go to Devon Street because I want to experience that cultural purity there. So I go there because I want authentic Indian food that's not serving Americans and making it bland and, and you know, Americanizing it, where people are speaking the different languages that happen within the large, massive <laughs> country that's India and I go there because I want to buy beautiful silk saris and pearls and I go there for the culture and mm -hmm. it would make me sad if that got diluted I want to celebrate cultural separateness in those ways now if I was not allowed to go in as an American, like they're American too. So, but as a non-Indian, that would be a different story for me. That would be a different experience. But I appreciate the idea of keeping your language, keeping your culture alive. I think this is a very important deal. It's just when people start getting nasty with it. And uh, when we start talking about genocide and all that, that's the dark side. But the beautiful side is we all have such amazing cultural differences that I think should be celebrated and not feared. And it saddens me that the world cannot come to an understanding of this. I don't think it's about culture here. It's, it's it is a, about it's political religion. there for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything is political, but I think it is like everything's political. You know, you're correct but, there, of course, as usual, guy. <laughs> but it's 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 messy. Like I said it before. Like I actually wrote about it. Even on Steam, it I shared it. Um, I think that people 
here want there to be peace, but they don't want to have to make the concessions that that would require. Yeah. And part of it is, you know, because you know what, what they say, there are no assurances in life. No, no one wants to be, uh, no one wants to be the one that gives up on anything. Yeah. Especially when you don't know if it will work out because, and no one, no side wants to be the one that gave something away and then for it to have been for nothing. And you also have the extremists. You, you do have, like, as I mentioned, the people who actually don't necessarily want peace. Also, often for political reasons. Like, the people who are greedy, who believe, uh, like, on both sides, right? There are people on both sides that believe that they can have everything west of the Jordan, which I consider unrealistic. Yeah. Unless you are willing to take very immoral actions, in which case it can be realistic. Yeah. It is obviously tumultuous no matter how you parse this out and from what angle you're coming from and that is you know what goes on in israel is a its own microcosm because that's going on everywhere and this is currently a larger issue that i think is happening and playing out in the world as we see a lot of migration going on a lot of tilting of cultural balance in uh indigenous places where it's creating a lot of tension and it's hard so we've created this time and this is part of where i wanted to go with you in this Uh, especially as we get into mysticism and prophecy and all that from your perspective that I think is going to help round out some of the narrative for anyone that's listening to me. I think that this is uh, a good balancing factor. And again, I'm doing it for myself, but there are people that are enjoying where I go with these conversations. So on this, and at this juncture, before we get into some current stuff you brought to the Mm -hmm. table today with some timely, this time of the year, uh, mysticism and Jewish stuff that is going to be juicy, I know it is, Uh, we will take a break here. This is just a foundation hour, and everything from this point on is just going to move deeper into the juiciness, the uh, character, the uh, essence of a culture that I find a lot of people do not understand clearly. And because of your particular stance, I think that you have such a beautiful pinpoint perspective on some of these things that I'm interested in, which is mythos and story and narrative at the core. So this is not a political segment, and I really try to stay out of all that. But it's at the same time, some of that has to be woven in because here we are, and these mythos are colliding now. The people's stories are colliding, their religions are colliding, their beliefs are colliding. And so it's an interwoven narrative, but I want to steep it down into, with you, mysticism from your angle. 
Yes, carry on. Before mysticism, I do want to say one thing, but I always try to say uh, to, non- to non-Israelis or who, when we speak about, like when people abroad speak about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I find myself face palming a lot, both when people are pro-Israel or anti-Israel, because the biggest thing I want to convey is that there are no magic solutions. Even if this will get solved, it will take generations, probably. And like people need to realize that they need to speak in order to speak. Like, and, I, and I mean the Palestinians and the Israelis. Like people say that, oh, nothing came out of it, so it was worthless. No, you need to speak in order to build a rapport. Uh, people tend to think that there are magic solutions. People, like the media is very black and white. Like but one side is right, one side is wrong. Or like there's conflict and then there is peace. And it doesn't work like that. Like Israel has peace with Egypt and but it's a cold peace like the egyptian population isn't enthusiastic about israel at all and for instance or there are people in the israelis are in the right and in the wrong palestinians are both in the right and in the wrong and you need to understand that it's not so much that there are but it's nothing but grace as much as there are no colors, like there is no map. It's not a simple situation like in the Holocaust or like in Darfur, where there are people who are clearly just in the wrong, so to speak. It's I want people to understand that like everything I do in my life, all my analysis is trying to uncover the complexities of things. And the political situation in Israel is a very good example of a situation where there are wrongs and rights everywhere, and there will be no magic solutions. Just a very long process that won't stop even when a peace agreement is hopefully achieved. Yes, there's so much nuance here. And this is why I appreciate your perspective greatly. And I I feel like a lot of people understand this that are reasonable and stepping aside and looking at the fact that there is a great amount of nuance here that needs to be considered and I don't live in that world of black and white you know this I'm definitely Miss Gray and so to end this first section properly how do people find you in the world your blog where are you do you want to be found Uh Uh, these days I'm not very active online like I sometimes tweet things yeah. at, at Guy Shalev but I barely read stuff that is not tweeted at me just because uh, there's so much for me to see other than that I'm still trying to find the energy not the time or the energy like to stream video games to resume blogging but right now I'm sort of hard to find let's say and that's alright mm-hmm. That's all right. I know where to find you. So with this, we will see you on the other side, people out there. And I will hopefully be engaging with more of this as we move forward. Until then, this has been the Cosmic Salon. 
and there he goes. That is my friend Guy. And so we have a wonderful conversation on the second end. This was all just groundwork for the segment I really am excited about uh, having Guy's perspective because we have great conversations and we have for a long time as I said in here we met over poetry or through poetry or poetry was the bridge that connected us and so you can imagine uh, having started something lovely from that ground where, where it could go so each month with Guy it's going to be the same I'll have the front end so you get a taste of where we may be going and that will be out to the public and the second end will be for uh, my patrons through Patreon where we get a little deeper where we get a little juicier where it gets a little more intimate if you could consider that uh, idea in terms of where these kinds of things go, where these conversations flow. And so I want to thank the producers of this program, Sana Rebecca, Jason Lampson, Michael Watcher, Melanie Poe, Christy Tesmer, and Marin Kramer, as well as... Patrick Newlin, who is on board as a producer in the technical sense, he does the bookings and has been on and off. It started with me, and I had originally wanted to do this with Patrick. He said he would come on board. He has a fantastic uh, history now. In the world, I'm not going to say the show, but as as a producer in bookings, and if you listen to the Waters of Sound, he's wonderful up front in talking as well. I I think of him as my midnight guy because he's relaxed, thoughtful, meandering, and very deep. And so hopefully we'll hear more from Patrick in the future. I personally would like to see Patrick have his own show. I think he's really talented. And obviously he's made friends with a lot of great people in the world and established lasting relationships. And so thank you for coming into the salon and getting into a bit of the Jewish side of things from an atheistic Jew. This is going to be a fun journey for everyone that's interested in these things. Guy is able to meander, and his analytic mind keeps him really in a nice central place when it comes to things, and he's very quick to... Mm, correct me and anyone that knows me closely at least in this stage in my life I appreciate being corrected I take it in I feel that we should all be open to 
those energies, even though we could probably find a better word for being corrected, I think that anyone that comes into the salon understands where I am and does not need to politicize that word. With this said, during our up here in this hemisphere, dark winter, I hope everyone is well and warm and has love in some form in their life. I'm certainly trying to bring some of that to your lives. Even when I bring the darker stuff, I'm peppering in the light as well. We need a well-rounded soul food soup up in here. And that is what I have always been good at serving. So with that, thank you for coming and joining me in the Cosmic Salon. Sweet dreams. And don't dream it's over.